what I want to say about vanilla is that it's because it's like the second most expensive ingredient in the world next to saffron. In saffron growing regions, there's a lot of cuisine around saffron. That's what's so mind blowing here. You come here and you think there is going to be vanilla in a lot of things or wild peppercorn. And, you know, it's just a lot of stuff that's growing here is not in their cuisine. So it's interesting to try to think about, you know, as a Western cook, like, well, how would I in- incorporate it into their kind of cuisine? And I feel like some of the chefs here that we did meet are doing that. So I feel like it's kind of like a brand new time. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome to episode 110 of the Flavors Unknown podcast. This episode was recorded during the trip to Madagascar, I have taken with Chef Elizabeth Faulkner, mixologist Sharon Tibet, and Chef Michael Gulota. The three of them won the Vanilla Extract Company Challenge from Simrised, organized with Star Chefs back in 2019. I don't know if you know, but 80% of the global production of vanilla beans comes from Madagascar, and Simrise has been there for more than 10 years and works directly with 8,000 local vanilla farmers in the region of Sava, which is located in the northeast part of the island. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. Elizabeth Faulkner is a chef, pastry chef, author, consulting chef based in LA. She is as well the author of the foreword of my new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. Shannon Tibet used to be the beverage director at Death & Company in New York. She was as well the first American woman beverage director at the Savoy in London, and now she's the beverage director of the Lower Third in Soho in London. And Michael Gulota is chef and owner at Mofo, Maypop, and Tana in New Orleans. In this episode, you are going to hear their experience in Madagascar, the discovery of local ingredients and local culture of food and drinks, and the week they have spent in the vanilla region of Madagascar and their conversations with vanilla farmers. I would like to start with, um, in fact, at the beginning, the three of you won the uh, recipe competition from uh, Simrise with the vanilla extract that we launched uh, on the market in 2019. And that's the reason why you're here, because, uh, you know, in Madagascar, because you are the three winners. So congratulations again. I know it's been three years. We had the pandemic in between, so we forgot about that. But here we are. I wanted to hear from you the recipe that you have developed. If you can just describe it, you don't have to go in details, but uh, that, you know, people that are listening understand a little bit, you know, what you have done with the vanilla and how you showcase, you know, vanilla in, uh, in the recipe that you've developed. So who you want to start first? Well, hey, it's Michael. <laughs> Hi, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I, my dish was a crawfish tom yum tossed over a uh, gnocchietti pasta, and then I finished it with merleton that were pickled with the citrus vanilla from Simrise. Hey there, Shannon here. Hey, Shannon. Hi. My recipe was basically in the style of a Ramos gin fizz, but using mezcal and Aperol, so like a bittered, smoky Ramos fizz, and then using the Simrise vanilla orange extract. I chose that sort of style and template because normally you use orange flower water in a drink like that. And so the vanilla orange really kind of played very well in that in that way and showcased that flavor really well. It's Elizabeth and I made a... I really wanted to showcase the flavor of 
just vanilla extract from Simrise. So I used steel cut oats, oat milk, because I think oat and vanilla is so nice together. A little bit of chiffon cake, and I think it was a little creme fraiche on top or yogurt, and just a hint of Meyer lemon zest. But just really the focus of the flavor of vanilla. So I have a follow-up question. So now that you have been on uh, on the trip here in Madagascar, and you can you know rethink about that that recipe, and if you put the context of you know Madagascar, what you learn about vanilla and some other ingredients, how would you do it differently? After the trip, that is a great question. <laughs> is it Michael? This is uh, this is Michael, and that's a great question. I definitely would find a use for the pink peppercorns. I have like fallen in love with pink peppercorns since this trip. Just this the f- the the floral fruity notes that it adds along with that spice. It's I don't know. It just I think it's amazing now. So I I, I very easily would add the pink peppercorns and actually cocoa nibs. Cocoa nibs would have worked perfectly in that dish with all those flavors that are going on. So those two things, 100%. And you're talking about the, the pink peppercorn. Uh, I remember we had a discussion during the trip where you mentioned that you were not really too keen about like peppercorn before. That was like in ingredients was okay for you, but nothing really something that you were using in your, in your cooking. But the trip in Madagascar seemed to have changed your viewpoint on that specific uh, ingredient. So why? Well, I think, it, you know, the interesting part in a lot of classical cooking, I find pepper or white pepper is just kind of a baseline flavor that we just sort of add to everything. Whereas, you know, I mean, in Southeast Asian culture, you'll find green peppercorns a lot or Sichuan peppercorns. But once again, not really as like a a central note, whereas I find that pink peppercorn can be used really just to make things pop and to round out a lot of flavors. They just add a lot to a dish that I've just never really used before. Of course, also the ones we had here are so fresh. You know, I think that's going to be a shock when I get back to the U.S., will they be as powerful as the ones that we're using here? I mean, the ones here, when you add them to something, they just, they, they, they really add something to it. So I'm hoping it'll be the same way. Uh, hi, Shannon again. To Michael's point, really now just seeing more of what kind of ingredients are frequently used here in, in Madagascar. I, if I were to redo the recipe, I would definitely incorporate a lot more of those. Something with the vanilla, but also, you know, fresh mango or peppercorn, of course, cacao, coffee, all these things make perfect sense together. I find generally speaking that if it grows together, it goes together. So a lot of food that comes out of the same regions, they end up integrating really well. I think if I had to redo the vanilla oat dish, I would use either, I would toast or almost burn some of the oats, the steel cut oats, like they do the rice here and use that sort of burnt phenomenon to me, the rice water in the composite, the main composition of the dish. And I might use, I might use rice instead and do the same thing, but I think I would stick with the oats because, because they, they're so smooth. They really, it's just a nice texture. And then I think I might add some cashews though to the dish instead of the little bit of streusel that was on top, just because the cashews, oat and vanilla, it sounds like breakfast, but it was a dessert that's meant to be not very sweet. And it would just ha- take some of those other flavors that I've experienced from the cuisine here in Madagascar. Thank you. And for the people listening, uh, you probably hear some background noises here. In fact, we are sitting outside on the deck at uh, one of the hotel, the Grand Urban Hotel in Madagascar. It's a lovely day, but um, that explains <laughs> you know, the, the noises in the background. Back to the comment from... Uh, Michael about the, the pink peppercorn and the fact that, you know, we kind of like revisited that ingredients because of the trip. What about you, Shannon or, you know, Elizabeth? Do you have now maybe a different viewpoint on a specific ingredients? Shannon here again. A lot of these ingredients I've already been working with and love very much, but what I have found now is just a, a newfound respect for how they get to be in the form that we're used to using them and, you know, seeing the vanilla specifically from the perspective of the farmers and just starting with, you know, the fact that every single blossom is hand pollinated is amazing. And, and the, the entire laborious process that has to happen in order for us to take this ingredient that I think probably before I was definitely taking for granted. Now it just kind of gives me a new appreciation for, for the whole process and where the, these ingredients come from that we just get in a grocery store you know, something we're used to having just instant access to. It's it's really eye-opening to, to experience the entire process start to finish. 
All I can think about right now, it's Elizabeth, in case, don't get me confused with Michael, I have a deep voice. (laughs) All I can think of is how, you know, I love going to a place where things grow, come from that I, you know, that I've never experienced before, like vanilla, you know, like this country that grows like 80% of the vanilla in the world. And then seeing all of the other agriculture around it, like, I love fragrance so much and I find flavor and fragrance like so intertwined. So I love that people grow, farmers grow other things that we saw like vetiver and patchouli and other things that are used more in fragrance. But then in fact, we saw a mixologist use some vetiver in a cocktail yesterday. So I just feel like between that and the peppercorns and, you know, this specific parcel of terroir, there's just so much other flavor in this country that I didn't associate altogether. That's just a, a big takeaway for me. Anything that you, you are packing in your bags in terms of ingredients that you are bringing <laughs> back with you? Yeah, uh, more than I should probably. I'm not sh- Yeah. <laughs> will, yeah, will this be declared? Yeah, a lot. Rum, coffee, chocolate, pink peppercorns, the wild peppercorns. What else? A lot of vanilla, so much vanilla. A possi- possibly legal amount, illegal amount of vanilla. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we're all we're all come, um, going back a few a few kilos heavier than we started, both on our bags and our person. I also am taking back a tin of crocodile pate. Yeah, <laughs> I'm taking all that back, and and we also got some pure essential oils of of vetiver, patchouli, and lang lang, and just seeing all those plants and flowers and putting it all together. I honestly have never seen patchouli plants, and I I really love that note in fragrances. I don't love, like, patchouli walking around the street all the time, but, like, I really do love... There's a really deep, like, mythological sort of note to patchouli, and I'm just, just awestruck by the plants throwing off that aroma when you're walking around those farms. So what is your overall impression, feeling, you know, about Madagascar? Because you had either no preconceived notion, you know, between, before the trip, we chatted a little bit, you know, on the plane or uh, when you guys arrived, you were open to, you know, for discovery. But now that the trip is almost over, what is like the overall image and impression that you are going to take back with you? That's a big one, I think. This is Michael, by the way. I, I think that the three of us kind of had a lot of conversations and about, and I had, we also had a lot of conversations with, I hate to say, like younger Madagascar people about just sort of coming up. Like they, you know, we, when we were at the, the bartender competition, so many of them were talking about improving Madagascar and how, you know, it has a lot of conservative colonial ways and sort of doesn't, respect everyone equally and a lot of them were talking about how they wanted to change that and bring new industry and bring craft beers and you know empower women because that's a, a thing here as well and so a lot of people that we talk to have that on the top of their mind and it seems and that's those are things that we notice walking around we're like oh my god these are you know there's there's a lot of inequality here and in, in, in disparate parts of the culture and so i thought it was amazing that those things were echoed right back to us as soon as we started talking to people who were who we were directly involved with through the tour. That was kind of wordy. I hope that made sense. Yeah. Also, particularly, like you said, speaking to the younger population, you could tell that they both simultaneously have a tremendous amount of pride in their culture and their heritage and their country, but also like they really want, they're so motivated to make improvements and, and, you know, show people the potential that exists here and, really embrace where they come from and, and like you said, try to just make the country the, the best that it can be. It's really great, really inspiring. I think that the fact that it takes so much time and energy to grow vanilla beans and cure them and all of the process and then, you know, the extraction for vanilla extract but the entire process of vanilla is so time-consuming, so meticulous, and the fact that, that it all gets exported, mostly gets exported, and isn't really something that you don't, you know, I think that 
somebody from the outside, like myself, like us, coming to Madagascar, I have this idea that it's going to smell like vanilla everywhere, and there's going to be, like, vanilla everything, like vanilla spas and vanilla, you know, like chocolate spa, but vanilla. And it's going to, you know, it's going to be in everything. I think that there's so much potential in this country to take that product and utilize it just to show off not just vanilla, but all these other ingredients and not just sell them, but like really utilize them in products here. And, you know, just in manufacturing, I just think there's a lot, there's a lot more potential for it to be used in the place that it comes from and for those people to make money from it. Yeah. I mean, listening to uh, you, um, Elizabeth talking about the, the vanilla and reminds me, obviously the discussion we had with the farmers and that was something shocking for me that, um, the world, the entire, at least Western, you know, civilization, part of the world, enjoy vanilla. That's one of the, our key flavors for, you know, ice cream to bakery and other applications. And in fact, they have no idea. They then, for them, vanilla is money. This is a currency. This is their income, but they have no freaking clue what the rest of the world is doing with it. And when you ask the questions, you know, about like, okay, so what's your use of vanilla? And they work and shock and they were okay maybe we use a bean now and then you know in a sauce and when we could meet but that's about it that was really um you know um, kind of a, a learning a new learning for me because i i talk about vanilla you know all the time but that aspect i, ne I never thought about it so focusing on that series of days that we spent like around vanilla if there's anything specific like a highlight i heard you talking about the pollination, you know, Shannon on, on the flowers. I heard you, um, Elizabeth, talking about the long process, including vanilla. Any highlights, any things related to the whole days that we spend around vanilla that you want? Something that you didn't know and highlight, something that intrigued you? What I want to say about vanilla is that it's, because it's like the second most expensive ingredient in the world next to saffron, this is the, the comparison that I'm trying to make. Saffron... In saffron-growing regions, there's a lot of cuisine around saffron. It's over so many centuries. So you think about Spain or Israel or in Turkey. There's, these are saffron-growing regions, and there's a massive amount of history of saffron being used in those cultures and those cuisines. And so that's what's so mind-blowing here. You come here and you think there is going to be vanilla in a lot of things or wild peppercorn. And, you know, it's just a lot of stuff that's growing here is not in their cuisine. So it's interesting to try to think about, you know, as a Western cook, like, well, how would I in incorporate it into their kind of cuisine? And I feel like some of the chefs here that we did meet ha are doing that. So I feel like it's kind of like a, just a brand new time. Yeah. Do you think that part of the reason, in addition to just monetary value for exportation, is that a lot of those ingredients aren't indigenous? So there's not as much of a history inherent to the cuisine and the culture specific to those spices and ingredients, I guess. When I um, had the discussion over lunch the other day with um, Laurence, who is the, you know, the, the president of uh, Simrise Madagascar, she mentioned that it happened exactly the same with cacao. So cacao was absolutely not used or there was no transformation in the cacao you know, in the history of uh, the culture, you know, in Madagascar, it's, it's already starting. You know, we see that. But everything was transformed for exports. Now, recently, you can buy, you know, chocolate bars in, uh, in Tananarive. This is recent. So I think this is exactly the same, you know, the same situation for, for vanilla. So, I mean, to your point, Elizabeth, I think that over time, or would you expect over time there to be more incorporation of those ingredients into the local cuisine, given the fact that, I mean, like you were talking about before, the, there's kind of this up-and-coming generation of, of new young chefs and bartenders who are starting to do that more. Have you found that? Like, have you noticed that at all since being here? I, I mean, I think we saw that yesterday, like in spades, uh, every single bartender was incorporating vanilla or pink peppercorn or wild peppercorn and all saying this, these are, these are our products. These are the flavors of Madagascar. So I think, I, I think if we were to come back in five years, we would, we would see that 100%. 
of course, in Antana, I think it would take then another 10 years for it to spread everywhere else. You know, it's true, and it's funny, because I'm thinking, sitting here thinking, I think it's 100% true that in uh, mixology and in pastry, that often those people making those things are leading that change. Because when you think about like incorporating all those flavors into savory cuisine, I mean, it's not really what people have historically do. I mean, eventually it kind of emerges into it, but it's always the the cocktails and the desserts are leading the path in the flavor. Let's focus on the on this cocktail competition and for the people that are listening. So the cocktail competition was especially uh, set up and organized for you guys because you were visiting, you know, Madagascar. So the famous local bartender Kemek decided to set up this competition and uh, have you as judges including as well one that the flavorist from Simrise, because that, that was very important, you know, for them, because he wants to to re-put the, the, the lights on craft cocktails in uh, Madagascar. What was your memorable moment for, for that competition? I was so delighted yesterday. I mean, that, the whole event was done so, so well. And the, the young bartenders are incredibly, incredibly talented. It was interesting going into it because I kind of, you know, we've been traveling around the country quite a bit and there hasn't really been much of a cocktail culture to speak of in a number of the places we've gone. So I sort of had a, a naive preconceived notion that, you know, maybe the drinks would be a little more rudimentary or, you know, not just really not knowing what to expect, but not necessarily thinking that it would be particularly advanced. But I was completely wrong. The bartenders were absolutely phenomenal. I was extremely impressed with their presentations, their cocktails, their professionalism. I mean, it was it was really great to see. There's definitely a, a burgeoning cocktail culture in the city for sure. I mean, the thing that blew my mind yesterday, I mean, all of the presentations kind of blew my mind. The one that was just, I mean, like, I love the mixologist who, who won because it was a just, a, she was so pro and it was just a really great cocktail. But the the guy who came in second place, I'm sorry, I don't remember everybody's name, but the cactus puree shot. <laughs> Slimy cocktail was like, what is happening here? It and was it was surprisingly good. good. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I never think of texture when it comes to cocktails, but the, that cactus, with the texture of the cactus was really, it really delivered it in a, in a way that was novel. And so, yeah, that was surprising. A little terrifying when we, not as terrifying as the wall of fire. <laughs> That was actually truly terrifying. Uh, <laughs> he got all the points for showmanship on that one. Yes. So uh, <laughs> it was the, that was the second guy, third guy, the third guy. He built a volcano because apparently there is a famous volcano in Madagascar that we did not get to see, but it's there. And uh, so he built a volcano out of glassware by stacking them in a precarious Way, very, way higher than anyone should ever stack glasses and then lighting the entire thing on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Pouring, pouring down flaming liquor over the entire thing and in turn lighting a bunch of shot glasses that were also full of whatever proof liquor. So it was just a, and a bunch of herbs that then caught fire. So everything was on fire. (laughs) And he kept saying the glass might explode and it was like, at any moment we were like, glass is going to come flying. Yeah. (laughs) and very close. And then it fell. And I hate to say that, thankfully, it fell in his direction because he was able to get out of the way because we were all seated in chairs. If it would have fallen our way, it probably would have fallen on four yinging, and that would have been awful because... It... <laughs> but no one was hurt. No one was injured. And, and then we, uh, we sipped flaming shots. So there you go. Yeah, for the people listening, uh, Michael mentioned yinging, and yinging is uh, a flavorist at, uh, at Simrise that was part of the judges as well. An amazing palate. She has the most amazing palate. She can pick out flavors out of anything. It's It blows my mind. Yeah, she's incredible. <laughs> Very good. So one of the other uh, uh, moments of uh, your trip is um, this um, evening at the restaurant called Marais. And it is um, led by uh, a chef called Alaina. And so we have been in contact with him before the trip, aligned, you know, on... Uh, recipes, ingredients, and you guys have cooked and prep, uh, you know, with his team. So how, how was it? Like the, if you can describe a little bit your experience of prepping with the Laina team and as well 
the fact that even if it was aligned and prep in advance, you discover things that you know were not available and you had to adapt. So I, I'm curious to hear about that as well. The most amazing part to me, once again, was just the support team. Chef Lorena has a kitchen of almost entirely women, and they worked very efficiently. That I haven't seen cooks jump in. Like as soon as a task was given, every single one of them jumped in and grabbed something and started doing it, which you just don't see that much anymore. And uh, they were all interested in learning. They all had a, a sense of humor. For one, I mean, they were they were able to laugh at the situation that we didn't speak very good French, and but they still did everything they could to make it work right. And by by the end, I mean, we put out some really great food, even though there were some hiccups with with sourcing certain things, and we had to do some some serious pivots and. And for some reason, Elizabeth had to do five dishes. Uh, so, I mean, there was a lot. <laughs> I don't, there, was, there, was a, there was a lot of pivots. And, you know, obviously, Chef Lalena has his view on sort of the end product. He's much more, he's much of a, you know, he was out there really setting up the front of the house and making sure it looked beautiful. You know, and I guess he has that confidence because he put a team in place in the back that were paying attention to everything we needed and were making sure that, the final dishes look great. I mean, they, they really did hustle in the back of the house. Yeah. I mean, as soon as we had lunch at Lelena's Marais restaurant, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic because the kitchen's just beautiful. The dining room is really sweet. And that, oh yeah, that secret bar. Anyway, it was a really, really fun party. Cooking was like, hashtag, yeah, why did I have to make five dishes? But <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> But uh, the caviar was actually really delicious, yeah. too. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed putting things together to go with the caviar. And I really just wanted to sort of bring... This is what I like to do in other countries, too. I like to bring like some of my ideas of what I think is going to happen. But I very much like to sort of discover new things along the way and try to incorporate them. And that's my favorite thing about cooking in general, because it's so in the moment. I just, I'm really happy with the, the team that I had assigned with me and the pastry team and just everything. I feel like everything really did come together so well. I love using the five guy spice that I, it's got a great name, but I can never remember it, but it's like a chili pepper in Madagascar. That's hot, like a probably as hot as a habanero, but also very floral and uh, just so delicious. Can you describe just top line, like the dish that you created highlighting this ingredient? I made a, Ceviche. So like, I really wanted to use a ceviche with caviar and use some cilantro, which doesn't, isn't really common here in the cuisine, unless it's Chinese, but not even, I think some people just kind of grow cilantro. It's not like widely grown. So I thought that would be really kind of fun because I don't really often have caviar with cilantro particularly. And then, but I also wanted to use some of the wild peppercorn and, and this Madagascar hot chili with it. And also, I don't think people have a ton. Of, they say that they don't have a ton of spicy food here. And we were trying to analyze that because there is oftentimes a, this chili condiment served with everything. Satay or sake? Uh, so they, there is like hot sauce here and there are hot chilies here, but it's not often incorporated in the food. It's like that condiment on the side. And so I really wanted to kind of bring that heat. Well, it makes sense. There's a lot of French culture here still and i don't think a lot of french culture loves spice like that so anyway i just thought that was really fun to bring all that stitch all the lime and herbs and spice to the ceviche you're making my mouth water just talking about it Ugh, so good yeah that was so good michael and uh, and shannon can you describe the same thing like only one you know a cocktail or one dish where you used maybe you know showcase a, a local ingredient at, so at this same dinner at Marais, I did a kind of interesting martini that had a black pepper infusion, fino sherry for some like bright salinity, a lychee liqueur. And I had been searching on this very, you know, epic journey for white creme de cacao that we ended up not ever getting our hands on. But on our, which I was trying to, so hard to think of a substitute for that. And as we were <laughs> driving to the event, the day of, I was sitting in the back of our car and I just said to Elizabeth, I like, do I wonder if they have 
Malibu, thinking about what might work as a substitute and, you know, what functions like creme de cacao and coconut came to mind. So coconut rum ended up doing the trick. But I think that drink sort of, I mean, it was meant to really showcase those ingredients and, and pair with the caviar. But, you know, it's interesting because I wrote the drink before coming here and to be honest, didn't know that any of that stuff was grown here really. But once again, like if it grows together, it goes together. So it makes sense that all that stuff worked together in my head before tasting the drink, but then arrived here and learned that all those components are grown in Madagascar. It's a busy city. We're in here right now. <laughs> whole lot. There's a whole lot going on right now. I guess mine would be the, the, the oyster dish. I am really glad that we did the dinner at the end of our trip because I probably wouldn't have cooked the same way at the beginning as at the end. I was going to do an oyster dish that was supposed to be a very simple, fresh passion fruit mignonette with some of the beautiful uh, Madagascar caviar. And just a whole lot of things ensued uh, just because the passion fruit they ended up getting was just like a, a syrup that was not very good. And then the, the oysters that they had brought in fresh accidentally froze in their cooler overnight because there was a malfunction. So when we came in the next day, they were all popped open. So we had to do some serious pivots and ended up, thankfully, uh, Elizabeth was like, well, you're from New Orleans. You should do like a New Orleans play. And I was like, broiled and yeah, broiled oysters. And so I even think you said broiled. You're like, you should broil them or cook them. Just throwing ideas back and forth. And I was like, I was like, oh, hell yeah. All right. I, I, I come from the land of, of charbroiled oysters. So we're going to broil them. So I took a little bit of the passion fruit syrup and uh, whipped it into butter with Parmesan and garlic and just a whole ton of the uh, of the pink peppercorns. And the pink peppercorns just added that that pop and then broiled them and added the, the caviar on top and ended up being a, ver a very popular dish. I, I even got accosted by one gentleman, Mr. Rossini. Because he needed more oysters. He was yelling at me in half French, half English about giving him more oysters. And I didn't have any more. <laughs> That's true. Because uh, he, he ate them all. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yes, I, I tasted one oysters. And um, yeah, it was delicious. But I, I couldn't go back to them because they were gone. So during that trip, beside the ingredients, we met interesting people you know, along the way in Tana and as well in the, the region of Sava where the, the vanilla, you know, grows, which is in the northeast part of, uh, of the island. So we talked about a little bit the, um, on the farmers, but uh, if there's like, a local person that you guys met during this trip that made an impact on you? Who I wanted to spend more time with, I would come back and want to hang out with, is um, Dina from, um, please tell me the name of the... This sort of vanilla sanctuary, vanilla plant sanctuary. It was a beautiful property, but it's also, and we had a wonderful lunch there. What I really, really enjoyed about her, she was just so knowledgeable and poetic about vanilla and just walking through the vanilla vines there and all the different species that they keep and hybridizing and trying to understand the plant more. That was just fascinating. Like I just love, I loved hearing her talk about vanilla and I loved that she, they had us plant vanilla Reachers, what are they called? The um, when the the vine, the loop. Yeah, thanks. That was just a magical kind of experience. Yeah, that was that was very special. It was really cool. I really really enjoyed and took a lot from the experience of going to Sambava and speaking with the farmers, sitting down and having a really in depth, thorough conversation about their experiences and their their lives and and what this craft of growing vanilla means to them and, and how important it is to their communities and their, I mean, obviously their livelihoods, but also just their, their families, their traditions. Like it's, it's clearly something that in addition to being their income, it also is for them very much a lifestyle. All right. I kind of got a, a twofer because I really enjoyed getting to, to spend time with, I mean, I didn't speak the language, but with Mama Alexia and just seeing like what she'd been through with, she, you know, she's had her plant, her, her farm for years and has been through so much where she's cleared it and put different crops down. And those, and those were, you know, ruined in cyclones and, and everything she's been through. And, and hers was 
arguably they're just the most wild. I mean, the vanilla bushes on her, the, the vanilla vines were just massive and, and, and you could just tell she had been doing it forever. And she, but she still just had a way about her, just sort of that, that motherly way about her and taking care of everyone who worked for her. So for the, peop- the people listening, when we talk Mama Alexia, it's um, a woman that has a farm on the Antala River. We had the chance to go there. We took a boat, you know. Um, a we pushed trip. a boat. <laughs> and, some of, some and, of us pushed a boat. And, and some, yes, Michael helped us to push the boat. He lost one of his flip-flop, you know, in the sand outside of the boat. Yeah, silt up to my thigh. I was, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to die here. <laughs> and this woman, yes, uh, in fact, her husband and, and her uh, bought the farm and the land in the um, 60s, I think, 50s. End of the 50s, beginning of the 60s. She does a little bit of vanilla. Her main focus is on the pepper and the, the wild, you know, uh, pepper from, from Madagascar as well. Just to give a little bit of context for it. And I loved her fields of flowers along the river that she planted. She spends, she spends her time just planting groves of, flo- of huge flowers. Um, amazing. You know, I thought that whole... And just how massive her farm was with all the fields of, of uh, cinnamon and then the fields of peppers and, and just stunning. And then I really enjoyed uh, Kamek. I thought what he's doing, you know, it's like the opposite flip side. You know, he's in, in the big city trying to push a culture that's not popular here. And he's trying to, you know, we were even told by multiple people at nice restaurants that there, oh, there's no cocktail culture in Madagascar. We, we just don't drink cocktails here. But uh, you know, and what he's doing, and and the, the people at his event that he organized were so excited and so fired up to be doing what they were doing. That's just infectious, and it's and it's awesome. And the, the the energy that he brought to it, and how well he executed it, that was really impressive. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really loved that experience yesterday. Uh, this whole area called La Tinturerie in uh, in Antananarivo, which is really um. Um, a hub for um, artists, you know, painters, there's sculptors, there's, you know, food, drinks, and music. I think it's, it's, it's great. And that wicked looking pizza oven. True. Yeah. Did you taste the pizza, by the way? I, I haven't had a chance, so I don't know. No, no. That, that there was a lot of cheese awesome. on it, but that's all I've seen. But uh, yeah, yeah, very cool. So we had a, a dinner a few nights ago here in um, Antenarivo. We were already so full from our fine dining lunch, but and we were all so fatigued, but we went to this dinner at a restaurant that focuses on vegetarian, although there was a pork dish, Akiba Lodge. That chef is a good example of, like the mixologist, somebody who's using a lot of local ingredients from the farm that's related to the to the restaurant. And we had an exceptional dinner. Like it was so tasty. The candy ginger alone was like mind blowing because it was so juicy. I think some people were confused that it might be a pate fruit, but in fact, it was just candy ginger. It's fresh ginger. No, I mean that's just how fre- it's just because the ingredients. Are I'm so- that person. It was me. No, no, it was, you can just you, say it. You can you just say it, <laughs> chef. You weren't alone. Some no, people. No, you weren't alone. Uh, it's both of you guys. <laughs> I was trying to like just be politically correct here. And say that it was some people at the table. <laughs> it's not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying it actually it felt like it could be patifui, but I was like thinking, no, no, it, it definitely had. It's just because the, the ginger's so fresh, and then it's young ginger, so it just it was yeah, outstanding all the way through to the dessert, which was I think a good example of somebody who took an idea of the burnt rice water and poached cashew nuts in it which ended up tasting like chestnuts in the dessert so it was like it was just so delicious and so well done and it was like this little idea of a tiramisu but cashew and this burnt rice flavor which is very madagascar and it added as well some uh, pulverized there was a powder as well on top of uh, the meringue that he did you know that was based as well with this uh, rice water and toasted water so i thought it was a great example of uh, I don't know if it's the right word of saying this, but kind of a fine dining experience of, you know, some local ingredients and some local dishes that were, you know, turned over them. A modernized, yeah, modernized dish. I felt like that restaurant and that meal would fit in perfectly 
in like New York or LA, you know, it, it, it felt incredibly contemporary, very elegant and really kind of just smart and fun and playful. And I it, like, it's a, like you said, a really great example of a chef doing some cool, innovative stuff with, with Madagascar flavors. But I, I felt that that, that I wouldn't have felt out of place in, in that restaurant in like a big, like, you know, modern United States city. It was awesome. So before we, we close the conversation here is, so if you had to um, come up with a, a drink or a dish or a dessert that would represent Madagascar, you know, what would it be? Great question. Uh, <laughs> we've been talking about this throughout the entire trip and talking about how it's very easy to just create a dish or a cocktail that uses local ingredients but the trick and really the je ne sais quoi is to how, how do you capture an experience or a, um, you know, a mood or a culture flavor in flavor without necessarily leaning on those local ingredients as the vector, as the crutch to do so. We discussed, all right, well, everywhere we go has a really smoky smell because of all the wood burning fires. And so like, okay, if I was going to do a cocktail, it would have to have a little bit of like a smoky scotch in it, that kind of thing to kind of it's make it this organoleptic experience rather than just about what we've eaten or had to drink here so far. It has to like really capture every sight and texture of, of the city so or the country. Uh, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah. I just feel like I was kind of did that with my quail dish the other night because I had the opportunity. Oh, I have it just I have it just in my brain. I need to make things like Sichuan chili crisp, but I don't have to do exactly something that's Sichuan. In fact, I can't I don't have all those ingredients here in Madagascar, but I love this idea of some heat and crunch and the thing that chefs are, you know, smitten with these days is, you know, chili crisp and salsa matcha. So I love playing in that world and so to use the local, you know, I love quail. It's, you know, a, a bird that we have in California a lot and cook I've cooked a lot and I really love it. In fact, my grandpa used to hunt them in Missouri. So I wanted to take the quail from here and put some sort of California slash Madagascar things in it to, to put with it. So I made like a sherry lemon vinaigrette that had some of the peanut, cocoa nib, all the peppercorns, like Madagascar crisp because I'm not going to call it Sichuan anymore. But then also taking the um, buzz bud flowers that that grow here and using that in in place of the Sichuan peppercorn. And so I think the acidity from the vinaigrette, the, all of the fat and spices from here, including the banana chips that are like sort of a common snack with the the peanuts that are just on the street here too, and just all those things coming together with a little bit of heat. In that way, it goes away, so far away from Sichuan. It, instead of all the red chili flake, it's you know, it's just all of the peppercorns and a little bit of spite of the dried chilies. Yeah, I think just that with some little salad underneath is like a perfect expression of something I'd like to make from here again. I always look for things that kind of resonate with me, and the the romazava really does because it's you know they they use the that bitter green. So the romazava is like a it's a it's a stew usually using pork, but they use the what is it the bread bread muffane bread mafana that's the, the buzz button. So they use that bitter green in it, so it's numbing when you eat it. But at the same time, it's a very restorative dish. And you know, I come from New Orleans, which is sort of the home of restorative dishes because everyone's always drunk. So like if I were to do, I would redo the romazava. I would redo it sort of in in the in the New Orleans Creole style, or I would use like smoked ham hocks, and may and you know maybe add some like white beans to it and make it sort of, but still we would eat it with rice. We eat everything with rice in New Orleans. And I, I love that here we eat, every, they eat everything with rice. It has that, it's still very Creole here as well, but that's sort of that sort of colonial Island nature anyway. I mean, New Orleans is the northernmost Caribbean city. And so we, we have that same Creole influence. And so that Romazava really speaks to me because that is that just, that's sort of the dishes that I grew up eating, which is, you know, greens braised with, with pork and smoked, smoked pork over rice I would do that dish, but more in New Orleans way. I would add the the Holy Trinity of New Orleans cooking, and you know I would add probably you know finish it with a little bit of hot sauce, but then still serve it over just some great rice. And I could I could eat that any day of the week. You are flying back, um, you know, tomorrow uh, to the U.S. 
if someone asks you, you know, about your trip to Madagascar, what are like the keywords that you are going to share with them to describe your experience here? Fever dream. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I, I just get when we were, when we were in the Saba region, I was just like, it's just like heart of darkness. Like we just keep going, picking this path and it just gets crazier and crazier down the path we go. We just kept meeting these more, more and more interesting characters who make these industries run and who are integral parts of what's going on. And, and, and you were sort of off the map. And uh, even though anywhere you went, you had great cell phone coverage, which is weird, literally on top of a mountain in, you know, after just climbing out of a boat somewhere in the jungle. But no, I, you know, it was, it was just sort of because it's so unlike anywhere I've been, you know, even having been in Southeast Asia and everywhere else. And, but this is just so different and the culture is so different because it is sort of still figuring out itself because I think it was a colony for so long and they, they really don't have a sense of self because a lot of them came over not even that long ago. Like we asked a lot of people what their history was and, and what the longest, you know, the, when the first people came to Madagascar, and most of them were just like, I don't know, we're just here. And we're, you know, like it was very strange. They, you know, we didn't really see that whole pride in, in Madagascar till the, I, I would say when we started meeting some of the younger people who were sort of developing an identity. But a lot of the older people were just like, we've always been here and, you know, we make vanilla because it's money and this is what we do, which I thought was kind of strange. And it was just sort of. I would say that I feel like if I was going to explain what Madagascar feels like, it is magical. And in a way, it's a little bit like Twilight Zone because I feel like I've gone back in time. And so a lot of in a lot of ways, when I first landed here in the city and I was taking a taxi to the hotel late at night. And driving through the streets, and I thought, oh my gosh, this looks like, like I, I remember in the 1980s, I went to, I was in Europe in university, and I went through Yugoslavia on my way to Greece, and a lot of the architecture and feeling here, and certainly the economy here, reminds me of that period of time. So I honestly feel like I've gone back, whatever, 35 years ago, 40 years ago, because I feel like it's it's evolving right now. It's the economy's going to have to change. It's the classism has to change. It's really a brand new country. And it's so it's all those, you know, people developing their own identity here has everything to do with that because it's still, you know, it has a ways to go, but it's kind of a, I feel extremely humbled and fortunate to have come to this country to see where something so exotic like vanilla comes from and cacao and all of these amazing peppercorns. And see all the, and meet all, so many generous and nice people who really don't have anything compared to anybody in America. It's been an adventure. Yeah, to say the least, it's been an adventure. I, it's interesting to me that you said Fever Dream and you said Twilight Zone because I just keep thinking Alice in Wonderland and like this sort of other world, you know, just like very transportive kind of, it just feels like we're in a different dimension in a number of ways, especially, I mean, all the different places we've traveled and they're all so distinctive, but I feel uh, often like, you know, we're going further and further down the rabbit hole where things just get stranger and stranger. <laughs> and so many of the people we've interacted with are just like caricatures of themselves, right? I mean, it's felt almost like we're in this Charlie and the Chocolate this Factory the, kind of. Uh, uh, like, DJ talking. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, we're in, you know, every every door we open and every room we go into just gets so much more bizarre. <laughs> and, but it, in a way that obviously is, is still very exciting and educational uh, and, and really just eye-opening. You know, like I said before, these, so many of these ingredients, I have certainly, I won't speak for you guys, but I'll, I've taken for granted, you know, they're just available to me when I need them. And it's never a problem to just get the thing, right? And now seeing the labor that goes into getting that stuff, I'm just like, whoa, it's, <laughs> I had no idea. It's, it's crazy. So, I mean, to answer your original question, I think that I would say it's, it's, it was an eye-opening experience, mm -hmm. really. Very good. Guys, thank you so much uh, for spending the hour uh, with us, sharing the experience of this uh, fantastic trip to Madagascar. It was the first trip for me as well. So, um, it was an eye-opening experience. I'm usually very organized and structured, and I had to <laughs> learn how to let go of certain days, <laughs> as you have experienced it yourself. You don't normally do your podcast outside in a yeah, but that's, terrace with that's a guy fine. <laughs> banging on a metal sign with a hammer? Right. 
it was kind of funny because like in the first two days, you kept, you kept saying, "Oh, well, we've had to change the, you know, the Hold itinerary," yes. and we, "Oh, we had to change the itinerary again." <laughs> oh, and then by the fourth day, you're like, "There's no itinerary." <laughs> <laughs> you just you just gave up. I was like, "That's <laughs> that's up. amazing." I just have to fight. This is, this is growth. We're, we're we're watching growth with, right now. The, <laughs> <laughs> I have to know the day with the, the hour we start and you know when we finished and yeah, no, that was good. So thank you for uh, playing the. The whole adventure, you know, with us. It was great to have you for two weeks here in Madagascar. You still have a few hours to enjoy before you jump on the, the plane back. Hopefully, so we still got a bar crawl to go to. Yes, absolutely. Hopefully, there's no five hours layover in Paris, like on that way. <laughs> Don't jinx it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, no one on this bar crawl tries to light us on fire with <laughs> volcano <laughs> no, cocktail. Volcano cocktail. Yikes. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chef Elizabeth Faulkner, mixologist Shannon Tibay, and Chef Michael Gulota. You can follow them on Instagram at Chef Faulkner, at Shannon Tibay, and at Michael Gulota. That's easy. And you can follow as well this podcast at Flavors Unknown. You can subscribe to our newsletter on the website flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to read more about what I have learned from all my conversations with acclaimed American culinary leaders, you can get my new book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, anywhere you buy books online or on my website at flavorsunknown.com. Look for the book in the top menu bar. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.